0: Soul, 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 soul,
1: Hi, and welcome to the Choral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. I'm Chris Wilmore, and I'm excited to introduce today's conversation between the Choral Project's Artistic Director, Founder, and Conductor, Daniel Hughes, and composer Joshua Shank. When we set out to record this episode, the original intention was to have one episode featuring conversations with three different composers who have written works specifically for the Choral Project. But it was clear from the one-on-one conversations that it would be impossible to edit a narrative cutting and pasting portions of conversations because there was so much great material. So we pivoted and decided to share with our listeners the entirety of each composer interview. Let's take a listen to Daniel and Joshua Shank.
2: As I had said to you in email, the Core Project is doing a series of interviews with composers that have worked with the choral project and I've been a huge fan of your work ever since I heard Musica on Tangens, which is just such an extraordinary work. And we've done it several times, but because of that, I had reached out to you to ask you to write a piece for us, um, rules to live by. So I wanted to know if you just talk about your process around that, about how you pulled the lyrics from the choir and things like that.
3: Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny that you ask about that actually, cause I got to, um, just a random, you know, you get sort of those random text messages from people. And I got one today from a, uh, a choir director in Minnesota, and he says, "Damn you! I'm sitting here listening to rules to live by, and I'm in tears. Damn you!" <laughs> like that was just this morning. So, is that the
2: video of us doing it that he's watching, or is that uh, from your website?
3: He's listening to. Uh, if he found it on my website, that video is linked. So I imagine oh, it's okay. uh, it's the concert footage. Um, Such a good.
2: So I love that piece.
3: <laughs> I, I'm pretty partial to it as well. Um, that that piece is. It was sort of, because that was for, I want to say, the 20th anniversary of the choir. Correct. I think, right. Yeah. So it had to be something, at least for me, um, that was about that community of singers that meets for rehearsals and um, that community of administrators that kind of runs the organization and, um, and then the community of audience members that shows up to that concert. And I just tried to think about, like they all sort of believe in one thing together, right? And which is like this, this, this group, The Choral Project. And, and what it can do and, um, uh, for them and for others. And so I just started to think about this like idea of what do they believe? Um, and I'd recently been writing with this idea of community-sourced texts. And uh, so what I had originally did was typed in the phrase, uh, this is for another piece called Love Song, and I typed in the phrase, uh, he loved me because, and then just sent it off into a, a, an internet search. And What came back was this beautiful constellation of humanity, of, uh, uh, you know, there's sort of whimsical uh, responses like, uh, he loved me because there was a gleam in his eye when he straightened my tie, to this really, really truthful testimonial about uh, spousal abuse, which was, he loved me because he took off his gold sovereign rings before he hit me. And so um, I put that all together um, in kind of a libretto, in an order that I thought I, I could do something with. And then I wrote that piece. Um, so when you came, came uh, Anakin, and, and I set it on this idea of community and the choral project community. And then I hit this sort of thing, I believe. And I thought, what a better way, uh, uh, what a great way for the community to be able to express itself. What do you believe in? Um, and as you know, we got some really, really cool responses. And I combined that with some uh, more formal um, belief structures uh, from like the Baha'i faith. I like I also got one from a sort of a, a you know, terms and conditions, uh, or, uh, uh, yeah, it was a really, really wonderful project, and um, it's a, it's it's sort of the choral project's, credo, of sorts, and it it felt like a really beautiful gift that I got to give, you know, um, to this choir, uh, that they get to sing their own words, because uh, that doesn't happen very often in our line of work.
2: Every time I get to this one statement that I wrote, and I I had just gone through. My divorce, and I was feeling very unworthy and so my statement was I believe I'm worthy of love and every time the choir would get to that spot I'd be like, oh, I'm going to fall apart. It was very powerful and cathartic. And now this has led to us exploring what the next piece that you're writing for us is. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Um, yeah, I mean we're sort of. Uh, I think as a matter of fact, I just I have a special choral project folder that I've been. Oh my <gasps> no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when when we finish the piece, I'll give it to you. You can have it. Um, and uh, so like when ideas will hit me, and I, when I can't fall asleep, uh, when I'm thinking about this piece, um, I'll run in and sort of you know scribble it on a piece of scrap paper and then put it in the the folder for the coral project and kind of where you and I settled on, on this conceptual idea is um I don't know what I want to call it. it doesn't have a title yet but like this humanist version of a of a coral mass you know um uh and and the rules to live by will be the credo of that mass and uh, we uh, we're gonna fold in some poetry by the the late great Allen Ginsberg, Bay Area poet, which I had permission to use. Uh, and um, I think where you and I started on this was like, well, the the mass is like right in in the choral in the the choral genre of of concert music. The mass is sort of like what the the genre of the symphony would be in the orchestral realm, right? Um, and every every composer out there puts their stamp on it. Um, if, um, if if they want to, if they feel they they can do that. So my original thought that I think we chatted about was like, well, when we're saying, "Curia um, Eleison, Christe Eleison, Curia Eleison," saying, "Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy," what are we what are we saying there? Outside of um, any sort of dogmatic structure, it's about those times when we're afraid and we feel that you know we haven't done things just right. And please, I, I, I messed up and I need some forgiveness. I need, I, I need someone to tell me that it's going to be okay, you know? Um, and which is what um, Rules to Live By sort of, sort of is. It's very simple language. Um, it repeats this phrase over and over and over again. So much so that after the words, I believe, because you've heard them so many times, your ear immediately goes to what comes after it. And you internalize it much, much quicker than you would, say, like a whole Shakespearean sonnet. Um, uh, in in my humble opinion, and I'm not knocking Shakespeare at all. I love I love you know, good old Bill Shakespeare. So,
2: so you're, we're looking at expanding the this credo and letting it bloom out into a full like Misa brevis of sorts. Or I don't know if you end up actually doing because the, we already have the credo. So yeah, it would be five minutes. The um, uh, we had talked about the, this poem by Allen Ginsberg that starts with "glory, glory, glory." Right? It's the so Holy. that. Holy, holy, holy. That's it. Yeah. So that would take place of the Santos yeah. um, movement. I'm, I personally, I just think it's, it's a brilliant concept. And, you know, the humanist in me loves the idea of doing something that feels inclusive because mass settings for me now feel more like they leave more people out than they let people in. And I, I just I hate the idea of ever even programming a piece in a concert where someone in the audience feels like they're not talking to me anymore. And so I'm always looking for a way to open that up. So th- I'm very excited about where this project is going to go and, and yeah, I can't wait to see more as it yeah. evolves. The you're in the, so you're in the middle now of moving to Boston. Um, and you're moving to Boston in the middle of a pandemic.
3: You don't because, say.
2: Cause you don't have enough to do. So a couple of questions around this. Um, how is that pandemic affecting your composing?
3: Uh, well, um. When I went into quarantine uh, here in Washington State um, in March, um, well, okay, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit, of, bit about that. So there's for those listeners that don't know, there's this um, professional choral organization in the United States called the American Choral Directors Association, the ACDA. And their uh, regional convention was, was uh, here in Spokane, where I live. Um, and I was doing um, an interest session on an inclusive choral rehearsal environment. And that was right. So Washington State is sort of where this all started. Um, not, not really, but uh, it's more complicated than that, but uh, where the first cases were sort of found. Um, and so everybody was very nervous and, and um, they canceled the, the convention kind of midstream. And so I was giving this, this, uh, this lecture and as I was walking up to the, the room, it, it occurred to me that this might be the last time in a long time that we would have the opportunity to sing together, uh, so I, I finished up my my presentation uh, and I said just what I said there, um, and then I said let's let's sing Amazing Grace together, you know, uh, let's just let's just see it, let's just do it, see what happens. So somebody you know gave gave us a D and and we sang together. It was it was emotional. It was, and it's it was you know I'm making air quotes now, but like just Amazing Grace, and it was still very very moving. Um, and then from there, it was into pandemic and teaching online classes, and um, not being able to really make music together. Um, and what I needed was just a bit of self care. I needed to feel like I was, you know, making some music. And so what I I did was I went into uh, one of the studios uh, uh, and uh, here on, on campus and wrote some music that was not commissioned. It was just something that. I, I needed to write for myself, and it ended up being a setting of the word Alleluia. Um, and so, from there, I thought, Oh, wow! You know, I, I finished it. I, I I really like it. It ends on this thunderous B major chord uh, with the sopranos all the way up on uh, the soprano ones, sorry, all the way up on a high B. And um, I started to think, like, Oh, I should get a consortium of people together and and uh, premiere this, and I'll get some money from that. That'll be that'll be good. Um, but then that started to feel like a little bit of a vanity exercise. Like, why would anyone want a piece of music that they didn't ask for? And then they're going to pay me, even though they didn't ask for it. So I thought, how can I sort of turn this into something better than that? Um, and I, then I started, you know, reading about all of our professional colleagues who are gigging musicians. And one of the backbones of our of our art and their livelihoods are just decimated. Um, so I thought, what if I put together a consortium where choirs buy into this and then all of that money goes toward a charity that helps gigging musicians. So I went out and I found this 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 charity organization called Sweet Relief and they have a specific COVID-19 fund set up for um, our gigging um colleagues. Uh, and it pays uh, it, it can help for with like grocery bills or utility uh, bills, um rent, uh and it's for any kind of musician, like a church musician section leader, that's great, a pro uh chorister, um you know, as long as they're making fifty percent of their livelihood uh, off of music, they can apply for this. Um, and that's you can anybody who's listening and is interested in, in doing, uh, taking a look at that. That's on I wrote about it on my Instagram page, which I'm at um, at the Joshua Shank on Instagram. Um, and a uh, 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 little uh, blurb about it will go up on my website here fairly soon. The piece is called Alleluia from Quarantine. Um, so anybody uh, within the sound of my voice who wants to donate some money um, to our gigging brothers and sisters, um, uh, our gigging colleagues, uh, please send an email. Love to hear from you.
2: That I I love the fact that you you have a project that's so purposeful that it 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 feeds back. It's like tilling the soil to and you know and the the plants that die go to yield a new crop in the next season, kind of a thing. So I think it's just beautiful. Um, and I can't wait to hear the hear the piece. So,
3: I also decided I should finally sit down and learn "Blackbird" by the Beatles. And so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like I'm halfway through. Uh, it's a lot of G major, um, but it's also you're know, trying to get my finger style guitar uh, back in uh, on, on, yeah, back in working right? order. Yeah.
2: How many instruments do you play?
3: Uh, just the piano uh, and the guitar, uh, and then of course I'm a trained singer as well.
2: No. <laughs> so. If people who follow you on social media will know that you're moving to Boston, are you planning any collaborations or compositions with organizations there? And uh, you're, I mean, you're, I know you're like, you alluded to, you're right in the middle of the move. You're surrounded by boxes. It happens this week, right? The move. Yeah.
3: On Friday, a couple days.
2: days. Uh, so uh, do you have anything lined up? Well, in your trajectory for when you land there?
3: Yeah. Um, well, one of the things, um, I'm, a, I, I'm a, a composer, but I, I'm also, like, one of my other, like, possibly, you know, the, the thing that I feel like I'm, I'm good at is, is um, and that is a real vocation for me, is teaching. I come from a family of teachers. And uh, so I'll be, uh, before I uh, knew we were going to move, um, I got a sabbatical uh, gig at a place very near where I am at. Uh, where I'm at now, uh, which is Eastern Washington University. So I'll be teaching a few courses online uh, from Boston uh, uh, there over the uh, over the course of the semester, uh, one on medieval and, and Renaissance music. Um, so lots of choral stuff there. I can teach the 19th century stuff uh, and, and enjoy it. But uh, I love the Renaissance and medieval uh, music because there's so much singing. Nice. Uh, so that, yeah. that one. And then I'm teaching uh, a course on music research and bibliography. Um, and with regards to artistic collaborations that are in Boston, there's tons of choirs out there. Um, and I've collaborated with the Laurel Ensemble and the Boston Gay Men's Chorus, uh, the Boston Children's Chorus. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you know, reaching out my tendrils into the Boston choral scene and um, hearing some of these wonderful choirs.
2: Speaking uh, regarding the Boston um, Gay Men's Chorus, do you want to talk a little bit about the project you did with them, Two Boys Kissing, based on the young adult novel?
3: Oh uh, yeah, so this this is going to be confusing because that's actually the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay,
2: <laughs> see already.
3: Oh, it's okay. It's it's uh it's sort of that that affinity group of choirs. It's like their fault for having such similar names. And they both both Boston and the Twin Cities choirs commissioned me to write big works the very same year. So uh, I'm just as confused as anybody. <laughs>
2: so that's what it was. I knew that they Boston had commissioned something from you, and I just flipped what the commission was in my brain. I'm sorry about that.
3: Oh, no worries. Um, Two, Two Boys Kissing is an oratorio that I wrote. It's actually my doctoral dissertation. It's just kind of, I got the commission right in the, in the spot of, uh, of graduate studies that I would need to write a big piece. And so this was it. Um, and the bo- uh, Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus uh, asked me to adapt this wonderful book uh, by David Levithan. He's an uh, author. He's from New York City. Um, he works for Scholastic Publishing. Uh, he was one of the first, I think I th- maybe the first person to see uh, the Hunger Games manuscripts come through, and he, you know, uh, sent them up, up the, up the chain. Uh, and he's a great, great guy. And he writes um, uh, YA literature, so young adult literature. And a lot of his, uh, a lot of his books have specifically have to do with queer kids. Um, and so this, this, this beautiful book called Two Boys Kissing. Um, it's about. Uh, well, the two title characters, uh, these two boys, who decide to, in order to raise awareness for um, LGBTQ issues, they decide to break the record, the world record for the longest kiss, and they end up kissing for over three, thirty-three hours, I think, um, and uh, uh, and it's but it has that it has a basis in reality. This actually happened. Um, these two uh, high school uh high school, no. Uh, they were college men in New Jersey decided to do that and they broke the world record. So for a while, the world record for the longest kiss was held by uh two gay men. Uh in any case in the book, um, there's there's sort of four parallel storylines. One is storyline number one is, is these two boys, Harry and Craig, and they're their and, they're, and they're, uh you know sort of world record breaking kiss. Um another one is uh uh uh, Avery and uh, Ryan. And Avery is a transgender boy and they fall in love and it's very sweet. They go on their first date to a like a, a putt-putt uh, place, mini golf. Uh, and then um, there's a fourth storyline, but I had to cut it out. Um, uh, in any case, the third storyline is um, a boy who is violently outed by his father, um, kicked out of the house violently and he um, does what so many... LGBTQ youth do and uh, attempts to take his own life. Um, so there's joy and sorrow in this in this these three storylines. The reason a choir commissioned me to adapt this is that those three storylines are all told to the reader via a Greek chorus of sorts, made up of all the gay men who lost their lives during the AIDS crisis. So it bridges these two um, these two generations, um, and it's. It's a very very sweet uh, book. If any of your listeners haven't read it, it's a short book, um, and it's uh, you know bring a uh, bring a hanky at the end because it's a uh, it's a wonderful wonderful piece of literature.
2: It's just sounds fantastic. And if people want to hear it, they can go to your website. Yes,
3: that's correct. It's also up on Spotify if you just search for two boys kissing. There you go. Or iTunes.
2: So I'm not outing you if I say you're an openly gay man. Correct. <laughs>
3: Uh, uh, that's pretty well documented. I am married <laughs> to a, a man. <laughs>
2: All right. So, um, for me being openly gay, um, I find because I've been asked the question to, has it changed how you are as an artist? And I, for me, the answer is that it, it has affected the kind of human being I am. And that comes out in my art. I end up being, um, very empathetic to, very sensitive to what's kind of happening around me, and sometimes to my own detriment, where I just it can actually affect my mood and um and and having been closeted for so long I came out when i was twenty two but you know very well practiced up to that point, always being aware of what's happening around me that's also affected affected me and then it comes out in terms of how I you know rehearse a choir or when I'm working with a voice student or the type of music that I want to write, a sense of sensitivity and empathy and whatnot. Has being gay influenced your music making, not just in terms of content, but in other ways?
3: Uh, I think it would be silly to say no, uh, because it affects uh, so much of everything uh, in our lives. Um, I think one of the reasons that specifically LGBTQ folks are so empathetic is that, um, how do I put this? we have to always sort of be aware of our environment um, and sort of reach out with our emotions and our sort of senses of safety almost uh, because uh, historically you know more marginalized communities like that um our are are um experience trauma um at a much higher rate than uh you know the folks at the top of the hegemonic uh uh pyramid um So I I don't. My my sexuality doesn't have to do with the content of the work, unless I'm asked to write specifically about that, which in which case that's not a problem at all. Um, um, But I think this sense of compassion and allowing others to have a voice, to amplify others' voices, is something that I really feel is a job for me as a composer to do. Um, I am a cisgendered white man. Um, I have some, uh, I have a lot of privilege in, in this world and, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't use it to try to change things. And sometimes that privilege is I'm the person that gets asked to write a piece of music. And, um, if I can make that piece of music, I don't know, it, I know it sounds silly, but to try to make the world a better place a little bit at a time, um, even just that little bit, uh, is a positive transformative change. Um, yeah, I have not. To be honest with you, I have not ever thought if m- my sexuality has a, an influence on my music, specifically. I, mostly just because like my sexuality is just such a small part of who I am. I mean, as you know, we're sort of put in a box and and essentialized a lot. Um, yeah, I'm a gay man, but I love like Tenacious D. They're one of my favorite <laughs> bands. Uh, <laughs> You know, I actually don't like Broadway musicals, um, which I know is like a controversial thing to say uh, for, for some folks, um, except for Sondheim. I love I love Sondheim. Um, that's a great question, Daniel. I'm going to be thinking about that in, the, in the, the coming days.
2: Have you experienced discrimination in your lifetime because you were gay? I mean, you, you grew up in a very different part of the country than I did, and I, I, I was privileged in that way to be in the Bay Area. But I, you're from the Midwest.
3: Um, well, so um, my story as a musician and as a gay man are kind of tied up in sort of a late blooming. Um, When I was in high school, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have an understanding. I wasn't out out to myself, I think is what the uh, uh, folks would say. Um, And I wasn't a a musician. I wasn't a singer until my senior year in high school when I got pulled in to uh, the choir because the year before uh, the choir teacher had heard me sing because I, I joined, uh, even though I don't like Broadway musicals, it, it was fun to be with the theater kids in high school. So I was in a production of uh, Guys and Dolls, I think. And the choir director said, you know, I, I could I could sing, uh, not very well, but well enough to get in into the, the top choir at, the, at this high school in rural Minnesota where I lived. Um, and then that one year in, in high school choir uh, changed my life trajectory. Um, you know, this is... 20 years later and I'm talking on a choir podcast and I have a doctorate in composition, Um, that 18-year-old, 17-year-old baritone who could, who would sometimes slip into the soprano melody while singing Lauritsen's O Monum Mysterio, like that little kid would not really understand how that, that one experience of being in choir like completely pivoted my life into a different direction.
2: Speaking of your budding composer inspirations, who are some of your influences? What are some of your early influences in music?
3: Um, William Byrd. I heard the Mass for Five Voices. Everybody's all about that Mass for Four Voices. Give I, uh, me the Mass for Five Voices. I'm with you.
2: I, the Five is uh, it's heaven.
3: And I had... Um, the first two uh, CDs back when we bought CDs, uh, the first two CDs that I bought were uh, Master Five Voices uh, sung by the Winchester Cathedral Choir, uh, British Choir, so Boy Troubles. Um, and uh, and then the the Lordson uh, uh, Los Angeles Master Chorale, um, Luke's Eterna oh, yeah. um, album that Paul Salomonovich did them. Um, those were my first two. And my, my, I have an abiding love for, for both of those. Those composers, um, uh, the, the Victoria Omanu Mysterium, I sang that in high school and that, um, was wonderful. And I still love that piece uh, so dearly. Uh, right now I was listening to Julia Wolf's piece, Fire in my mouth. Do you know this piece? I do not,
2: but now I'm going to have to look it up.
3: Yeah. There's a great, um, re- recording of it by the, um, New York Phil and the crossing, um, and the Young People's Chorus of New York. It's about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, and at one point, the, the women of the chorus, uh, ha- they all have scissors and they all uh, sort of, as a percussive effect, open and close them um, in rhythm. Uh, yeah, so I was listening to earlier today. Um, I'm a huge fan of David Lang. Um, uh, part of my dissertation was on uh, the Little Match Girl passion,
2: which we did two years ago.
3: Very cool. Um, yeah, I had a real nerd moment in graduate school. I kind of proposed this idea of. Of uh, the two, the two distinct worlds that are at play um, in the recitatives in that, and it got back to to Lang uh, through another graduate student, and uh, Mr. Lang was kind enough to say uh, that that kid got it right. So that felt, um. <laughs> I uh, you know, I pushed my glasses closer to my nose that day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but on the other chapter uh, uh, in that piece was uh, about. Um, Craig Hella Johnson's uh, Considering Matthew Shepard, which I know you, you chatted about on your previous podcast. Um, so that, yeah, that, that piece f- as well.
2: We were just starting to prepare that when we went into um, Shelter in Place. So it's, it's the first thing on the list to return to when we're able to get back to making music. we were so excited about that.
3: I had a similar experience. We were winding up uh, a production of that. Uh, just uh, we were almost we were just maybe three weeks away from the performance and it was uh, it was the concert choir uh, here at Gonzaga University our local pro choir Cantorai, um and then the LGBT uh, sort uh, social justice choir that I directed, the 80 voices um, we're gonna sing that as well and then on top of that Judy Shepard was gonna come in and speak uh, a week and a half later and um, and of course none of that happened so there was a little grieving period.
2: Well, you've come up with a term that I really appreciate for this time. You, you've call, you're calling it the great pause? Uh,
3: that's, that's what I put out in an email uh, when I was talking about this. Yeah,
2: I just think it's so perfect because it, it applies to everything. Just everything is on pause. Like I feel like everybody's sort of in a, in a hovering, hold on kind of moment, just waiting to, for things to resume. It's not like it's so indecisive.
3: And we can all see each other, too, but we can't move, right? Um, So we're all all in this together. And I I don't know if I necessarily, I I sort of coined that term, the great pause, right as it had started. Uh, It doesn't really feel um, as inclusive of all the emotional turmoil and uh, families that have lost loved ones and all that stuff. As it it used to just feel like we're going to hit pause on everything and now there's some other things.
2: And even the people who've lost things, their grief is on pause, They they're not able to properly go through things like a human being needs to. It's a, it's a surreal time. That's the word that I've been using more than anything else. It'll be my number one word on Facebook at the end of the year. You use this word more than any other word. It's surreal.
3: Or unprecedented is another popular <laughs> one. <laughs>
2: uh, when... Um, who performed your very first composition? And I'm assuming you were there. I think I know which one it was, but um, it, do you have any sort of anecdotes around what that was like, what the piece was, your experience, to hear something that you wrote being performed for the first time?
3: Um, so I, again, as a composer, I, I, feel, I feel like in comparison to my colleagues, I started fairly late. Um, I'm, uh, uh, you, you know, I'm going to out myself as a, a really naive teenager uh, here. Um, but I went to a place called Luther college for my undergrad. Um, and I went there, uh, and I was going to be a music theater major. (laughs) Uh, and I, I, like, if you think of, do you know the, you know the film waiting for Guffman? Do you know this film? Okay. So I wasn't quite that bad, but I thought I was pretty good, even though, uh, I was having nothing to write home about. Um, but I just, I started this music major and my parents, my very, you know, pragmatic Midwestern parents were like, um. You know, well, he's got a major, you know, so I'll, I'll do the music thing and we'll see what that gets him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, I got there and, you know, in undergrad programs, you have like this recital requirement, like you have to go to this amount of recitals um, over the course of a semester. So I, I had to go to one and I was this, you know, 18 year old kid and I went to a composition recital by a senior and his name uh, is uh, Matthew Erpelding. Um, and again, I was so naive. I went to this concert and it had never occurred to me that someone my age or around that age could be a composer because composers were, you know, old dead white guys from Austria or Germany, you know, um, and, uh, I was blown away, um, and seated right next to me, uh, was, uh, this conductor, some of your listeners probably know his name is West, was Weston Noble. Um, he was a, a incredible choir director, um, and a, and I mean one of the kindest souls I've ever seen, uh, and someone who is deeply involved in lifting others up. And so I was, you know, sitting there, eighteen years old, at this composition just, uh, like with a finger up my nose or something. And uh, he just taps me on the shoulder during intermission, and I turned around and like took my breath away because I was very, very intimidated by this guy. And he just said the first words that Weston spoke to me. Um, where young man, what do you want to do with your life? And any of you out there who know who knew Weston, that's exactly the kind of thing he would like. He lead, he led with that. Who does that? Um, I was so in, in 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 enchanted by this composition recital. I was like, well, I think I'd like to do this, sir. You know, and he uh, just said, then I think that's what you should do. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, and though you know, he and I had many, many, many more conversations over the years. Um I used to deliver his dry cleaning. Uh, actually, <laughs> um, that also changed the course of my life. And so I put pen to paper for the first time, and I wrote what the, what I called then I called a tone poem for piano and and ch- ch- piano cello and oboe. Uh, and it, it like it's really derivative of like uh, Sarah Hopkins' piece uh, "Past Life Melodies" because I, I played uh, I sang that in high school and was just blown away by the overtone singing. Um, and so it was me and my very uh, good friend, a cello uh, player named Eric Grant. Uh, and then, gosh, I need to look back and see who that oboe player was. Um, and I played piano, and not very well. Uh, and it, I got a recording of it. And you know, remember back in the days when you got your recording, you could hold it in your hands, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and having that really, really special thing to think, like, I made this. Um, yeah, that's a very fond memory. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Thank you for reminding me of that, that's, Daniel.
2: That's wonderful. In, in your writing, are there any recurring themes or motifs, musically or thematically, that you find keep coming up in some way?
3: Um, gosh, I don't know. There's like little, I mean, it, uh, you know, like Rene Clausen likes to quote the theme from Star Trek in almost every piece. Uh, I don't have that necessarily, and nor do I have any problem with that, by the way. I've, i I was a, a big Star Trek fan when I was in middle school and have met Patrick Stewart actually. Um, <laughs> uh, but like there's little things here and there. There's a Rufus Wainwright song that I really love that I'll sometimes kind of like sneak in. Um, uh, but other than that, um, I love a good four chord, uh. One of our first collaborations was when you asked me to orchestrate a piece I wrote called "A Christmas Carol," um, and I, th- I believe that was the uh, the orchestra director that you had on in a previous episode was was that that, that orchestra. Robert Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, in that, that that piece is all about stasis. It sort of sits uh, at at G major for a very very long time as the as the text is kind of set out loud. And then the big moment happens when we drop into a C major, into a big four chord. The whole world is in a four chord i think it's just it's my favorite thing
2: but that, i love that moment i'm going to get really nerdy and brainy as a, a musician here but for those of you who are into music and know your modes there the lydian mode sound is so strong at that moment it's my favorite mode it there's this it, it's modes are kind of like scales if you're listening in your not for sure but um it's it doesn't follow the Re Mi pattern and there's this tritone smack dab kind of in the middle of it that creates this Magnificent tension, I just so yes, I, that moment is just heaven. It's totally ecstatic. I love it. Um, I, I wanted to ask you really quick about the Rufus Rainwright song. What song was is that that you love? You said that.
3: Oh, I don't Rufus. know if I want to give it away. Um, it's one that I, uh, I, I, you I really want to keep enjoy. it b- to your chest so that
2: we don't <laughs> hear it every time we hear one of your pieces. <laughs>
3: um, you're gonna have to dig. There's there's one piece uh, where I used a harmony, but I I love the harmony of this piece. It's it's a song. It's called the Art Teacher. And it starts off with this, This it's Rufus wrote it after he did a benefit concert with Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, surprise to no one, this piece has oscillating minor thirds. It just starts off this, but then after that, that just becomes a, the sort of piano pattern. And he kind of uh, blooms it out into these sort of other harmonies that I think are really beautiful. Um and it's it's like a, it's one of the rufus songs that I can actually sing uh, cuz his range is so just astronomical um that uh, yeah there, the rufus are right there's some Ben Folds tunes I learned to play piano through Ben Folds uh Ben Folds songs um and uh there's one called uh Landed that I stole a harmony from and used it as a transition in a piece that I wrote uh, called To My Parents So maybe if any of your uh really like sleuthy listeners want to take a look in there maybe they can find it (laughs) we have a few they'll probably go digging yay
2: so uh what advice would you give your younger self if you could
3: um read more poetry Mm. yeah i young composers tend to write one of we'll say say five things okay one uh Uh, a Latin text from the mass, right? Uh, And Lord knows we have enough of those already. Um, Two, uh, something by Walt Whitman. Three, who I love. I love Sister Walt, all right? He is uh, one of my favorite poets. Um, And then Emily Dickinson, who I also love. Uh, 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 Let's see, Sarah Teasdale, (laughs) who is like a um, a, sort of a... a she uses all those, those beautiful words, you know? Um, and, and I have set all of these people that I'm talking about that I'm totally ragging on right now. Uh, and then five E.E. E. Cummings, all right? And usually it's like one of four poems that we've all read, you know? Um, and so branching out has been, uh, over the course you know, of 20 years, I've turned 40 years old this year, um, over the course of, of you know, the last 20 years, getting to read more poetry by people like Allen Ginsberg, um, or um, Octavio Paz. Um, also, branching out in the language department, too. I, I decided one full year of my commission schedule was going to be, uh, quote-unquote, my language year, and I was not going to set English at all. And I ended up setting some Latin things, uh, a whole French set um, on uh, Rambo and um, Apollinaire, uh, and then... Uh, uh a real stretch which was this uh it's a poem in urdu which is one of the national languages of oh. pakistan yeah um, and i got my my very good friend uh who is from karachi uh, we sat down uh you know in front of a sort of a, um, a patio you know fire pit and uh had a couple of good beers and he just ran me through each word and how to pronounce it and i had a microphone in his face the whole time um so branching out in, in that direction is is fantastic. I just finished up a piece, uh, well, premiered a piece in March, which is all in Spanish, um, uh, on a text that my husband actually wrote. Um, oh. He's fluent in Spanish, so it was about um, Rachel Carson's book *Silent Spring*. Um, are you familiar with that? I am not. Yeah, um, it, it it was unfamiliar to me until uh, my husband brought it up. Rachel Carson was a scientist in the '50s, and she did a study on DDT, which if you, if you know, if we all know, as we all know, like they were spraying it on children because it was quote unquote very safe, and she was a conservationist, and so she wrote a book about how if we don't sort of be become stewards of the natural world, we will end up with a silent spring, no birds will be there to sing for us anymore, um, and she was lambasted for it actually, um, uh, large in large part because she was a woman, uh, but also because uh she, she had accusations lobbed at her about um creating distrust in science when in fact she was doing the opposite right um, so yeah that's powerful so hey younger self uh read more poetry and write in different languages that is all
2: the the interesting thing about uh, just to add to what you said uh, writing in different languages, what's fascinating is that uh, since as composers we deal in Everything is sonic that we're laying out on the page. And languages themselves have their own sonic points of reference from which you can pull and it affects the way you write. And then even the descriptions of things in those languages are thought of in very different ways psychologically than they are in your home language, which also opens up other doors. So I I would agree with you. Young composers find a bunch of languages to write in and and don't do anything in Latin. (laughs) <laughs> this is too
3: much <laughs> yeah I have yeah, I have one great. piece in Latin and that's enough that was yeah. from that's uh, that's the piece that you mentioned earlier that's the first time I heard a choral project when I was a young composer and I searched my name on YouTube and the choral project came up and I thought oh my gosh this choir is so good and they did my piece and uh and then I, you did it with staging too I think right yeah we did
2: it was part of a whole theatrical piece where the entire script was just choral music so it Told about a life experience is sort of the common human experience tale, so that's when sort of the father in this family unit dies, and there is, it's, I, I can't shut up when I think about it, and I have to say though, yes you wrote it in Latin, but it's not a really a Latin text, because it's, I mean it's not from a sacred service at all, it's really a poem in Latin so it's, you're, you're sick, <laughs> it's not <laughs> It's so, not like th- another th- th- Ave Maria or another Curia, you know, or this, yeah, that is extraordinary. your brain and i love learning more about you and it, it's i knew i wanted you in on this when we were talking about composers and uh
3: you're not gonna put me through the questions i was really oh, nervous about no, that
2: i those questions that we did them for the first two but it's it because the composers we were doing multiple composers so you know we will invite you back next season and you can do those questions if you want to
3: okay
2: um, the um good luck with the move it's it's that's a biggie
1: thank you Daniel. Thank you for listening to the third episode of the No Baton Needed podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Choral Project on SoundCloud, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And download and like the No Baton Needed podcast, now available on most major streaming services. And join us for our next episode, featuring guest and friend of The Choral Project, Tony, Grammy, and Academy Award winner, Steven Schwartz. Until then, this is Chris Wilmore, wishing you a September full of music and joy.